Matthew chapter 1, familiar verses. I'm just going to read a couple here. Matthew 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph was troubled. This was not how he expected things to go. He was betrothed a a very formal type of engagement prior to marriage in that culture, and he is betrothed to one who he believes to be a virgin who is now pregnant, and so Joseph is going to end the relationship. He's going to sever this customary betrothal period and essentially walk away. And then an angel appeared. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew is the one who tells us that the birth of Jesus Christ, this account that he is beginning to record here, is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And he highlights it there. We see it in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is from Isaiah 7.14. You can turn now back to Isaiah, where we will spend the rest of our time. This week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through, kind of on a survey level, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, passage of Scripture that we are directed to by Matthew, by God's Word in the New Testament. As we look at the birth of Jesus Christ, we are taken back 700 years to the prophecy given through Isaiah, a prophecy that promised light that would overcome darkness, a prophecy that promised peace in the midst of turmoil. God promised a child who would be born to a virgin, a child that is foretold in the midst of troubling days for Israel when that prophecy is first given. It is the worst of times at that moment for the Jewish people. It is a prophecy of a child that is realized in the midst of Joseph's day, which is in some ways also a very troubled world in which the Jews lived, and it is the prophecy of a child that is still our hope today, our hope for peace in the midst of troubling times. The book of Isaiah is very good in helping us understand dating. It starts in Isaiah 1.1, and it lists those who were on the throne, who were kings over Judah during the time that Isaiah was ministering, that he is giving prophetic word, he is speaking for God. And so we know from Isaiah 1.1 that he begins his ministry around 740 B.C., so a little over 700 years before the time of Christ, and that it lasts for about 40 or 50 years through the reigns of four kings. Let's do a little bit of history here, and it's relevant to what we're looking at. A thousand years before Jesus Christ, the king over Israel was David. David, the man after God's own heart, is on the throne, and David is followed on the throne by his son Solomon. 
Solomon comes in and reigns until 931 B.C. When Solomon passes, his son Rehoboam becomes now king over Israel. If you remember the story, you know that under Rehoboam's leadership, the nation splits. Rehoboam is heavy-handed, he is immature, he is foolish, he puts an enormous burden of taxation, so much so that the ten tribes that represent the northern part of Israel essentially secede. They all pull away and two tribes are left to make up the nation of Judah. So you see the divided kingdom, the large yellow area across the middle is the northern kingdom of Israel, capital city of Samaria. And then the sort of pinkish salmon-colored one toward the bottom left corner is Judah, the the southern kingdom, those two tribes. And so Israel becomes a divided land. Israel then, the northern kingdom, Israel-Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, immediately begins on a path of its own destruction. From the time that Rehoboam was in control, then Jeroboam becomes king over Israel. Israel goes astray. It begins to immediately disobey God. Uh, Jeroboam gets the idea that in order to keep his people in his land, he doesn't want them going down to Judah and to the temple in Jerusalem where they would then worship. And so he sets up golden calves. Where did we hear that idea before? And it didn't go well. And he sets that up and, and sets up places of worship in the northern kingdom and says to his people, stay here. You don't need to go down to Judah. You can worship here. And for the next two centuries... We see prophets who are appealing to the kings of Israel and to the people of Israel to repent and to turn to God and to obey, and Israel just continues down this path toward its own destruction. About the time that Isaiah now is speaking to the nation of Judah, God has begun to punish Israel. It's early in that process, but God is already beginning to use an enemy to start to move into the land of Israel and start to threaten the people. The great world power of that era was the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, all of these different colors just show different layers of when they annexed new places to build this sort of kingdom. Some were prior to this in 740, some were still after this. But the Assyrian Empire takes over that that whole area and begins to move toward the southwest toward what is Israel, the northern kingdom, and also toward a smaller country, Syria. So there's the big Assyrian Empire. There's a little country called Syria that we'll see as we read on through this story. Um, But they are now beginning to spread, and they are threatening countries just like Israel. So chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 1, says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, the smaller country, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When you are a smaller country and a massive empire with a massive army is beginning to take over smaller countries, you have a choice at that point. You surrender and hope for the best. You fight and hope for the best. Or you form alliances and you try to join together with other countries and see if you can make yourself a little larger to withstand the attack. Syria, the small little country, and Israel, that's what they decided to do. Let's sort of band together as the Assyrian Empire is moving in. Let's sort of fight together. But they also decide what we see going on here is we're going we're to take Judah in with us. Judah didn't want to be part of this, but they decided we're going to force them to be a part of this. And so Syria... And Israel now are preparing an attack 
against Judah to essentially say, you will now join with us in an alliance. We will take you captive if need be. Ahaz is the king over Judah. Ahaz is no great guy. In fact, it tells us in 2 Kings that he was an evil king. He did that which was disobedient in the eyes of God, carries out some despicable sins, even to the point of sacrificing his own son to idolatry. So Judah right now is being threatened, and it is under the rule of a godless king. Verse 2, when the house of David, this would be Judah, Jerusalem, if you will, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, another name for Israel, Syria and Israel are together, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So just as Syria is synonymous. If you see it on some of the maps, it's also called Aram in some places, which was one of the, the, the cities. Aram, Syria, the same place. Israel, Ephraim, the same place. So if you see some of these names, don't be confused by them. They're synonymous. You've got these two countries who are now going after Judah, and Judah's getting the word. The, the, at this point, the kings who are on the throne in Judah are the descendants of David. And so he points it out here in verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria and Israel are coming after you, they are now understanding that they're about to be under siege. These two nations are going to come and seek to conquer them again. We know this happens at least twice to differing degrees. Second Chronicles 28 tells us Syria and Israel tried this at one point. They came into Judah. They took some captives. They took some stuff. They held prisoners. And it was the work of some prophets in the nation of Israel who said, these are your Jewish brethren. If we continue to do this, we're going to incur the wrath of God by going after them. And so they freed them and, and, and released them at that point. But it looks like they are aligning again. Because it, it says there in verse 1 that, that they could not mount an attack against it. And yet then the house of David hears Syria and Israel are in league again. And so there is now this word that it's not over. They are going to try to conquer Judah. They are going to try to take Judah under their control. And so Ahaz and the people of Judah have a sense for what's coming. This has already started before, and were it not for the intervention of God, they would have been captured before. They understand the reality that their northern neighbors, who have greater strength and greater numbers, are about to come in and take them over. And it looked to be the worst of times for Ahaz and Judah. And so that's why at the end of verse 2, it says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They knew this could well be the end. That this was the kind of thing that could just swallow them up and destroy them and send their people into exile. As one commentator puts it, this was the defining crisis of Isaiah's generation. This is that moment in history when people look to their king and say, what are you going to do now? Because we now know what's coming. We understand the threat. How are you going to handle this? And it is at that moment then that God sends the prophet Isaiah to go and speak to King Ahaz. As Ahaz is having to figure out, what do I do? God sends Isaiah. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. You're saying, well, what's with all this detail? What, what, what we're probably being told here, the fact that the king is out by a water conduit, is the king is trying to figure out what to do militarily here. When you had a fortified walled city, 
you had some sense of protection. The problem was your water supply generally was not contained within those walls. You didn't have large reservoirs. The water supply came by conduit from somewhere outside the city. And so presumably at this moment, Ahaz and his officials are gathered at one of these northern conduits and they are trying to figure out how are we going to secure the water supply. If Israel and Syria come after us, how do we not only protect our people in our city, but how do we make sure that they don't die because there's no water, because the enemy comes and just finds a way to cut it off? So Isaiah shows up with his son and he speaks the word of the Lord to a terrified king. Look at verse 4. God says to Isaiah, say to Ahaz, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Stop there. Isaiah goes to Ahaz, who is out trying to figure out what to do to prepare to protect his country, not turning to God. He is an evil king. And Isaiah goes to him and says, King, don't fear. Calm down. Don't don't start to panic. Don't be afraid. Trust God. Believe that God knows what is happening. And what he describes here is God already knows the plan that is formed against you. He knows what Syria is trying to do and Israel is trying to do. And I am here, Isaiah, as God's representative to say, listen, it's okay. Don't be afraid. God knows all of this. And he begins to speak to him and says, I know that they are going to try to terrify you and to raid your land and to put a puppet on the throne so that ultimately they can be in control. But, he says, God already sees Israel and Syria's future. They are going to end up like two smoldering pieces of firewood. So trust God. It's at the end of the campfire when you're down to just the little pieces that are left that really hardly have enough to provide any heat anymore. They're virtually useless. They are spent. And that's the picture. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, don't don't start panicking over these two countries because God has said they're just like two smoldering pieces of firewood. That's how he sees them. So trust him. Then there's more. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. He's talking about Syria and Israel's alliance. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, capital city of Israel. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Remember what we've said already. Ahaz was an evil king. And here is God in his mercy coming to an evil king who had done nothing to deserve God's favor. In fact, had done the opposite. And God sends his prophet to say, I will rescue you. I will defeat your enemies. All you need to do is stand in place and trust me. I will rescue you. 
God's message in verses 8 and 9, he's essentially reciting what the current world situation is at that point. God is saying, I know all the players. I, I know who you're thinking about. I know what the capital cities are. I know who the rulers are. I know all of these, these powerful beings, at least you think they're powerful, who are allied against you. I know all that. But I'm telling you, they will not stand. You stand firm. You believe me and trust me and don't go worrying about all of your little means to try to save your country. Trust me, and don't waver. Verse 10, this would appear then to be a second message through Isaiah to Ahaz. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Presumably some time passes from Isaiah's first meeting with Ahaz, when he says, just stand firm, trust God, to now when it says that again the Lord spoke, this would be a second message. And this time, Isaiah comes and he offers to Ahaz a sign. Commentator Edward Young writes, the all-merciful one approaches the rebellious one. God, in his mercy, is coming to the rebellious king and saying, listen, I even want to give you something tangible here, some kind of sign so that you as king, as you lead your people, have something to sort of show them, something to point to, to say, we trust in God. Look at this sign. This is from God. We believe in him. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says, ask for a sign. Make it as big a sign or as little a sign as you want. You name it, Ahaz. God will do it so that you can go back to the people in full faith and confidence in God and say, look, God's got this. And what does Ahaz do? Nope, I won't do it. Sounds sort of mock, sort of respectful at this point. If we didn't know Ahaz's background, we might think he's saying, oh, no, I don't want to test God. What Isaiah is really doing is demonstrating his heart at this point. God has not said, suggest it to him, he asked for a sign. God has, through the prophet, commanded him, ask for a sign. And Ahaz has responded and said, nope, not going to do it. I refuse. And so he is disrespecting and disobeying God. Ray Ortland writes, God handed Ahaz a blank check, but he refused to cash it because he did not want to trust God. This, this is, we're getting the look into Ahaz's heart at this point. Ahaz, stand firm. Trust God. God will even give you, just like Gideon, he'll give you a, something that you can see tangibly, just to, to give you something to bolster your confidence as a ruler in front of the nation. Ahaz says, no. This is not unlike proclaiming the gospel to an unbeliever who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and who hears that Jesus Christ came and he gave his life as a ransom for you and he died and he's overcome sin and death and you must turn from sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and they say, no, I don't, I don't really believe that. I don't, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to believe. It is, a, it is a revelation of the heart and that's what we're seeing here is King Ahaz's disobedient heart. Instead of trusting the Lord to save the people, instead of being the king on the throne of David who would obey God, Ahaz says, nope, I'm going to do this my own way. 2 Chronicles 28.16 tells us then what Ahaz did. Having been offered from God rescue and salvation, Ahaz instead decides, I'll go to the Assyrian Empire. Remember the big empire. I'll go to the king of the Assyrian Empire. And I'll say, hey, 
These two little countries, Syria and Israel, they're trying to get together and, and they want to form an alliance so that we can fight you. I'm here to concede to you. I'm here to do whatever it takes and get a deal of protection from you. And that's essentially what Ahaz does. He goes and throws himself at the mercy of the Assyrian army. And the, the king of Assyria raided the, the treasury of Ahaz and of Jerusalem and Judah, the treasury in Judah, and he takes what he wants. Doesn't take him into captivity at that point, but essentially what, what's left is a weakened, frail, foolish king. Ahaz has now demonstrated to his nation that when it comes right down to it, this is really all I got. I have no other good ideas. And so I'm going to Assyria and I'm throwing myself at their mercy. And they're going to take what they want. And it gets worse from there. Ahaz then closed the doors of the temple in Jerusalem and he sets up idols all over Judah and altars to sacrifice to those idols. Essentially what Ahaz does is he completely capitulates to the pagan king of the, excuse me, of the Assyrian Empire and says, listen, we're not even going to keep up this facade of this worship of this God. We'll close that temple and we'll set up idols and we'll worship all kinds of deities, anything, so that we can just be on your side and your team. And he leads Judah on this horrible path to disaster that is only going to be temporarily put at bay when his son comes on the throne, who is Hezekiah, who turns out to actually be a good king and provide some reforms. But we won't get to the rest of Judah's history from here on out, but we know that about a century later, Judah ends up in captivity in Babylon, which is now the world empire. Essentially, what Ahaz did, what other ones who preceded him, Manasseh and others did, is just set Judah on this course to disaster. But here in Isaiah 7, Ahaz, whose job it is to protect and to shepherd the people, to be God's representative, to be the one who looks out for God's people and serves God and serves the people, instead leads them away from God. The one who is to lead them in trusting in God in the worst of times and the greatest of crises says, no, 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 we'll just work with the Assyrians. We'll, we'll rely on a pagan, marauding, violent king and army rather than trust in the Lord God who has told us he would even give us a sign. And he sells the nation out. It's at that point of Ahaz rejecting God, that God gives the prophecy that 700 years later is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. This is now Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, the word of the Lord. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Notice just for a second, back in verse 11, when Isaiah spoke to Ahaz, he said, ask a sign of the Lord your God. So Ahaz, Isaiah approaches Ahaz under the premise of he should be your house of David, he should be your God, ask a sign. When Ahaz rejects that and says no, then when Isaiah comes back in verse 13, he says, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? That is Isaiah's statement of judgment that you've rejected him as your God. Now you are rejecting my God. Verse 14, therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Syria. So we know from Matthew 1, when Matthew records this, that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 is the birth of Jesus Christ. The virgin will be with child. She shall bring forth a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. We'll come back to that in a moment. It, what, it, what's clear from the text here is there were two fulfillments of this. There was something near in Isaiah and Ahaz's day, and then there was the one that came 700 years later with the birth of Jesus Christ. Something happened in Ahaz's day that was designed to accomplish two purposes. This is Isaiah saying to Ahaz, listen, you're still going to get a sign. And this sign will do two things. It will prove your judgment that God is judging you for your disobedience, and it will also show God's faithfulness. Because when you see that sign of that child who's named Emmanuel, God with us, it will be a reminder that God is still preserving his people in spite of your sin and rebellion, Ahaz. God will still keep his word to save his people. Remember when, when Isaiah first went to see Ahaz and he brought, brought along his son Sheer Jashub, a remnant shall return is what that means. No coincidence that God had him bring his son with that name because what he has been saying to Ahaz is, if you blow this, if you disobey and you reject what God is giving, that, that God will not turn his back on the faithful remnant, on the people that are his. God will still rescue, and he will still preserve a remnant. It's just that you're going to look like a fool, and you're going to be judged by God for having tried to lead them into utter disobedience. Isaiah doesn't, in this passage, identify a particular woman or, and child when he talks about the near fulfillment. He describes that a child will be born... He will be called God with us. He will grow by the time that he knows the difference between good and evil. The land of the two kings, Syria and Israel, the ones that you dread, it'll be deserted. There was a birth of a, a child to Isaiah in chapter 8. It could be that, this, this other son who was born. It doesn't say that explicitly. It may well have been that there was some other different birth that took place in or near Ahaz's court. There was some child who was born. The language that Isaiah uses here does not require that this be a miraculous birth, as in Jesus to Mary, who was a virgin. But, but Isaiah's immediate point here is to say, there's going to come a point here sometime really soon. There is a, a woman who perhaps is not even married now who will marry, and she will give birth to a son, and that son will be Emmanuel, God with us. And by the time that son is even before he's ready to, to eat solid food and understand the difference between right and wrong, even by the time that happens, my word, God's word, will be true. And you will look and you will be in awe of the fact that Syria will be gone and Israel will be on its way to destruction, just as God promised. We know from history that the Assyrians destroyed Syria in 732 B.C. This was somewhere... Isaiah starts his prophecy in 740, so this is somewhere right on the verge of that. And so before that child had even reached that age, Syria is already gone. Syria, this once powerful nation that was ready to stand up and fight against the Assyrian Empire, Syria is gone, and Israel, within 10 years after that, its capital city now is taken over by the Assyrian Empire. It happened exactly as God described. The two nations that Ahaz had Judah shaking like leaves about. Oh, this is going to be the worst. We don't know what to do. God said, 
they're going to end up like two smoking pieces of firewood. Just trust me. This doesn't turn out well for them, and it does for you if you will obey me. And that Ahaz doesn't. And the point of the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, somewhere in there, there is a child, a son, whose name is God with us, and that child will be an ever-present reminder of the fact that God does not abandon his people. Even when, when Ahaz tries to steer them down the worst possible road, God does not abandon his faithful remnant. He is still with them. And you, you will see that child, he's saying to Ahaz, and it will remind you that you're judged. I'm still here, and I'm still faithful to my people. If you back up 300 years from this, back, back to King David, said 1000 BC, David is on the throne. In 2 Samuel 7, God appears to King David, and he lays out the future for David and for the throne. And God promised to David at that point, you'll have a son who will build a temple, be the dwelling place of where I will dwell in Jerusalem and people will worship. And then in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is no coincidence then when you get to Isaiah 7, 13, and Isaiah is now rebuking Ahaz that he says, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little that you weary men and now you're going to weary my God? That is Isaiah saying, Ahaz, you're in the house of David. You're in the line of the king that God promised would be the throne that would be established forever. How foolish of you to act like you suddenly have to save the kingdom, that it's all on your shoulders and some, some deal that you try to negotiate with the Assyrians. God already promised that the nation would stand, that the throne would stand, and that there would be a descendant of David who would rule. Ahaz foolishly sought salvation from a godless king in a pagan country and idols when he had the God of the universe saying, ask me for a sign, Ahaz. I'm here to protect you in that remnant. And even that did not thwart God's promise. That's what gives us hope, because we can do some pretty foolish things too. And yet God keeps his word. The line of David would not be cut off. God would preserve a faithful remnant, and this child whose name would be Emmanuel back in that day would remain the sign that God keeps his word and saves his people. So fast forward to Matthew writing now this Gospel of Matthew and declaring this announcement of the coming of Jesus. And he recites Isaiah 7.14. And he makes it clear that God's ultimate fulfillment of the promise of the virgin with child will be Mary, who will give birth to Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Fast forward in history, and, and Israel's still not in a great situation. At the time of the birth of Jesus, Israel is under Roman oppression. It is the Romans who are in control. They have relative freedom, but only so much. Their people have, for the most part, been led astray by bad leadership, by poor religious leaders. They have not heard from one of the prophets of God in centuries. They have not had revelation from God in 400 years. They have been surrounded by man-centered rabbinical teaching at this point. They're waiting for some kind of deliverer, preferably they want, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, some kind of military guy, somebody who would come and fix the problem, get us out from under Roman rule, make life better, set us free. That's what we really want. They wanted a hero. They wanted somebody like they had read about of King David, 
Somebody who could rally up the armies and take on any enemy and lead Israel back to its prior glory. In 700 BC, when those armies from the north are marching south, the country looks to a young king, Ahaz. What's it going to be, king? They're coming. What are you going to do? And he turns out to be this weak, compromising, evil king. Seven centuries later, uh, yes, yeah, seven centuries later, the people are still looking for a warrior. Come on, somebody set us free. Somebody make us uh, free from, from this Roman rule. Somebody restore us to our glory. And they want a warrior who will use power to crush the Roman army. They want their circumstances reversed. They want everything fixed. I think you and I can relate to this somewhat, right? When we are in dark times, when we are facing hardship, when tribulation is, is like flooding in and we are facing some kind of brutal situation and, and that first fleshly response, how do I get out of this? How do I fix this? What do I do to, to repair this relationship? It's, it's akin to checking the water supply to see if we've got something to fix the problem. We understand that, what Ahaz is doing. It's on me now. I'm in this mess, I'm facing this temptation, I'm suddenly in this situation of darkness, and i got to find a way out, and we want the suffering to end. And the call from the Word of God is rest in God. He is with you. For Ahaz, it's like, what can I do here? What's my plan of escape? There's nothing wrong with wise steps and taking wise actions so long as we are submitted to believing that God is sovereign and we can rest in him and we can be calm and our hearts don't need to be faint because we can rest in him because he is with us. Ahaz wasn't thinking about God's protection. He figured it's all on me. Got to figure this out. You and I can act the same way. What do I do to fix this? Do I have enough of a credit line to help me, bail me out of this situation? Is there a way for me to get back at that person who hurt me? What, what can I do? Anything apart from humble, prayerful dependence on the Lord. It's the things we do when we refuse to believe the simple truth, God is with us. Do we believe that in any and every circumstance, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how difficult it seems, no matter how great the temptation seems, God is with us. He won't forsake us. God is for us. He is not against us. If God be for us, who can be against us, Paul wrote in Romans 8. If God is with us and for us, then am I meditating on that truth and believing that, that God is with me? He is my peace in troubled times. He is my hope. It doesn't mean the enemy necessarily vanishes, the problems all go away, and it's all just hunky-dory, but what it means is even in the midst of it, like Ahaz could have done, I can say God is here. And whatever happens, God will carry out and fulfill his word and work out his promises, just as he has said. We want to hope in those situations that God's answer is healing. Heal the disease. Get me back the job that I lost. Fix the broken relationship. Use your power, God, to fix everything and, and remove my suffering. Take away the hardship, right? More often than not, that's the sort of peace we hope for in troubled times, the removal of, of obstacles. The Bible doesn't say that, says we still will be touched by tribulation, but it continues to say to us that God 
is with us, and we have him as an ever-present help in time of need. There is coming a day when all of that stuff is defeated. We see that in the book of Revelation. He is very clear that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will be that all-conquering king that, that the world will see. Revelation 6.2, and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Revelation 19 says that rider wears a robe dipped in blood. He is the word, and the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the all-powerful conquering warrior that we long for, that we want to come, and put down all enemies, and to establish peace. But until that day, until that day when death is swallowed up in victory, until that day when death is cast in the lake of fire, and there are no more tears, or mourning, or crying, or pain, until that day, what do we have? Emmanuel. God is with us. Until that day, we have a God we can rest in and trust and believe. A God who, just as he said to Ahaz, says, don't be afraid. You, you don't need to let your heart get faint over this. Rest in me. Trust me in these things, and know that I am with you, and I am good. Ahaz is like every other form of man-centered rescue. It doesn't save in any ultimate sense. It doesn't rescue souls from sin and death. Ahaz needed to stop panicking, and he needed to rest in God, and he failed. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, came in flesh, and he gave his life on the cross as a ransom for sinners. He obeyed the Father all the way to the point of surrendering his life as a substitute for you and I, and to sacrifice himself to rescue us from something far worse than an enemy army or painful disease, or bad marriage. He came to rescue us from sin and death and to give us life and to be with us forever. The great and perfect warrior king came and did battle once and for all. And at the moment when it looked like he was defeated and crushed, that's when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, an overwhelming conqueror and now giving to us life and hope and forgiveness and saying, I am with you even unto the very end of the age. How do we have peace in troubled times? We believe the truth of what, what God said to Ahaz through Isaiah, what he was saying when Jesus was born and what he continues to say to us. God is with us. Believe that. Live by that. He is our peace in the most troubling of times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh, to take our sin and to experience your wrath in our place and the punishment that we deserve for sin, for being sinners who rebel against you, for having hearts like Ahaz, wanting to do it ourselves, wanting to figure out our own solution. Thank you for the grace and mercy by which you saved us, by which you brought us to the end of self and the realization that it is only the work of Jesus Christ, God with us, who can actually save. Cause us this week to live in the 
repeated awareness of what it means to know that God is with us, in us, for us. That in every circumstance, in all that we face, we rest in your presence. Cause us to stand firm in faith in those moments when we are tested and tried, believing that we are standing with the God of the universe who is with us in his son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.